0: This is Matt Hale presenting Art Monthly Monthly on Resonance Radio. Today, we'll be discussing the Venice Biennial reviewed in the current July-August issue. Art Monthly has a special offer for Resonance listeners on a year's subscription. If you email subs at artmonthly.co.uk and quote Resonance, you'll receive a 30% discount, which on a UK subscription brings the price down to £30. So that's subs at artmonthly.co.uk. Contact details are on our website www.artmonthly.co.uk I am joined by Patricia Bickers, editor of Art Monthly since 1992. Hello, Patricia. Hello. And Lisa Leferve, who has been a contributor to Art Monthly since 2002. Hi. Hi. They are here to discuss the Venice Biennial. Patricia, I wondered if you could give a little background on the Biennial, when it started, and perhaps why it started. I believe you specialised in the early Italian Renaissance period. But that's a little bit before the first biennial held in 1895, I think. Does it have any connection with the Italian Renaissance, however?
1: Well, there are two connections I can think of. One is personal, in that I was doing research into the early Renaissance when I was in Venice and I saw all these banners advertising the Biennale and I strolled along and was absolutely overwhelmed. And this was in the 70s. Um, So I've been going a long time. The other connection is that it was set up in 18, actually in 1892, but the first one was 1895. The committee was set up. Italians like to start with a committee. Right. And um, I think it was to address the fact that Italian art had once been famous, once been world-renowned, and was now somewhat of a backwater, and to put Italian art back on the map. And the other connection is that, uh, as you know, F.T. Marinetti and the Futurists regarded the Renaissance as the graveyard of Italian art. And in the second, I think, Biennale, he distributed anti-Biennale leaflets. So controversies always surrounded the
0: right, Biennale. Right, right, Well, that's very interesting. But um, following on from that, what's the structure? I mean, we go to the Venice Biennale and then and we go over a bridge and then it's quite complicated how it works. And so what's the... What are the different sections? Lisa, would you like to say a little bit about that?
2: Well, Venice is a really super strange event. And I think that whenever you start talking about the Biennale, you've got to deal with so many different factors. There's a the structure of the Biennale. There's the very fact that it happens in Venice, this place that is almost like a museum that symbolizes the economy. And also the fact that Venice traditionally, and Patricia will know much more about this than me, has been such an international city. And this internationalism is really important in the Biennale. So there's really two key sections, there's lots of other sections as well, but the two that you first think about are the national pavilions. So pavilions where art is shown, selected by the nations. Um, So there'll normally be solo presentations, sometimes guest presentations. So just to think of all of the complexities of national representation. Then there's the curated pavilions. So for every Biennale, a curator is invited to come up with an agenda to say what's at stake and to develop a group exhibition.
0: Right. I mean, because sometimes the pavilions have been group exhibitions. I noticed that in 95, I think there was a British one that was a big group show, which I, I hadn't realised, but now they seem to be more um, solo.
2: Yeah, quite often. Right? I mean, I suppose to say that they're solo presentations. That's a bit of a generalisation, but I think generalisations are sometimes the only way you can start with Venice. Right. But quite often, pavilions are constantly trying to test the parameters of Venice. Yes. So one of the many imperatives when you go to the Venice Biennale is you're not just looking at art; you're looking at art amongst the history of the okay. Biennale.
0: P- Patricia, in your review in Art Month's July-August magazine, you go through some of the pavilions and yes. describe them. I mean, I'm one that fits mm. what you just said, Lisa, it was Liam Gillick's mm. presentation, which was, although he lives in America and probably is a British citizen, I think, was representing in which pavilion, Patricia? Uh,
1: in the German pavilion. <laughs> <laughs> Logic there.
0: But that's certainly testing the...
1: Yes. I mean, but in, in a sense, this has always been the case because right from the beginning, the Italians built a neoclassical pavilion. And when Mussolini came in and took over the organisation of the Biennale, or the Fascist Party did in 1930, they pulled that down and put up a fascist modernist building. So the architecture, who represents a country, all this, you cannot leave, as Elisa was suggesting, the political dimension, the history. So everyone who represents their country and the great powers that were of the 19th century, Britain, top of the hill, France on the right, Germany on the left... They were the two um, the earliest pavilions to be built in 1909. Right. Actually the earliest was Belgium for some reason. Um, and then um, who you choose to select you is terribly politically. Usually there's a committee. It's all very secret in Britain oh, so the British, British recently, Council? Is it the British it, Council? It is the British Council, but they've now subcontracted to a committee. It used to be secret. Now they do release the names of some 20 people advising them this year so to come up game. with one name.
0: Yeah, are they, would they all be people from from the art? I mean, this is quite interesting. Do I think the kind of this are they art world people only selecting, or do you think there would be? I mean, would a politician sit on, in on? I mean, would it be? Is it that kind of? Um... It
1: used it used to be politicians. Mm. It mm. used to be um, um, a mixture: of politicians, the great and the good, Nick Sirota, yeah. uh, director of Tate, yeah. Richard Carver Caressi. Um, of course, the head of the British Council, Andrea Rosen, and all sorts of other people most of us have never heard of but are obviously distinguished.
0: Yes.
1: Now it's uh, much more of a large talking shop, including media representation from The Guardian, of course, media partners. Um, it's It includes critics, it includes collectors, dealers. Mm. Oh, really, so it's quite a
0: wide scope, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Mm.
1: Back to a large committee again.
2: Mm. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that's so... Um, essential about the Venice Biennale is that it operates as a barometer for taste, for ideas, for things that are happening, but it's also got this other job that it's generating new ideas. And I think that's really why in the pavilions and also in the curated larger exhibition as yeah, well, yeah. quite often the curators or the selectors will be trying to do this double thing of representing and generating.
0: Right, because th- this year's... Um, it is Curated by Daniel Bernbaum. Mm. I hope I'm saying that correctly.
2: Yeah, Daniel Bernbaum. Where's he from? He's from Stockholm.
0: Okay. And what does he do when he's not doing that? Is he? Do you know? Is he like a museum?
2: Um, he's an, has an academic post, right. and he's a curator, okay. and he's worked on re- loads of really, really interesting solo exhibitions and group exhibitions. And he would have been
0: selected by an Italian committee, absolutely of unknown people, probably. So he's come along and he's done his show, and you you talk about it in your review. Um, how he's done it in mm. relation to the other curators mm. of previous biennials. Mm. Can, would you like to, to sort of talk us through wh- how you see the past ones and then how he's maybe not doing it the same way? Because that's my reading of your review. Yeah, I
2: think he is doing something. Gently, radically different, um, if that makes sense. I think that it's really interesting. We've been talking for however many minutes about the Venice Biennale. We haven't been talking about art. We've been talking about selectors, choices, curatorial imperatives, the history. And I think that's the first thing that you think about when you come across the Venice Biennale. And so traditionally, it's a really prestigious role to be the curator of the Venice Biennale. And usually the curator, he or she have an agenda something at stake so it could be really trying to do something provocative yeah. now daniel Birnbaum sort of and i sort of is really really important hasn't done that but in fact what he is doing is quite the opposite he presents to my mind anyway a really well measured exhibition that isn't about thinking about an agenda an argument it's about looking at the artwork itself and so in effect it is an argument and for me it's really trying to say hang on a second we're here to look at work and I think the big question that I really wanted to address in my review is what is a Biennale and especially Venice the longest um, most prestigious periodic exhibition why is it so important yeah Is it for this big curatorial claim being made? Or is it to really look at the work?
0: Yes. I mean, they do present it incredibly well, so you can look at the work. Absolutely. And there's a tremendous amount of flexibility of ways you can do it. I mean, Patricia, you talked about um, uh, Hans Harker and then a a kind of green... uh, I didn't... Can you you tell me, you you compared him and then mentioned someone else who'd done a sort of outdoor piece, didn't you?
1: Well, one of the things is that Us old-timers really regret the passing of the Aperto. The Aperto was in a section called the Corderia, where they made the rope. Right. Um, And that used to be wild and wacky and not uh, governed by national committees and so on, but by usually young new curators, a young Daniel Birnbaum, many years ago. Um, But that ended after 96, which was a spectacular year when Hans Harker... Broke up the floor of the Italian pavilion, uh, addressed its fascist past, literally destroyed the fabric of the building, made it echo of with its past. Yes. And there's an echo of that in the former Czechoslovakian um, pavilion is that's it's now...
0: It's Dark, is that?
1: Yes, Roman Ondak.
0: Ondak, sorry. I, I don't know, I think that's Ondak, how you pronounce sorry. it. Mm.
1: And um, he has simply gutted it and planted it with trees and flowers, or rather bushes, I should say. It's right. all very green, no flowers. And the gravel is continuous with the gardens. Mm. So you walk all the way through, and many people didn't even realize they were walking through a work of art. Oh, really? And since it's called Loop, that actually completed the work. Uh, so it's a brilliant but usually the pavilions can be stultifyingly dull I, I, I disagree with uh, <laughs> Lisa a little bit on that um, but that's partly because I hark back to the rough and ready days when Pippi Rist was a name no one had heard of yes. and the, the young artists some of them mistakenly called YBA people like Angela Bullock and so on showed in the Elastoperto yeah, because there
0: was a seal, seal Floyer Uh, That that was perhaps in the pavilion. There was a whole lot of young artists in 95, I think. That's right. That was a pavilion show, wasn't it? No,
1: that wasn't. Was it? No, that was was called General Release. And that was a British Council satellite show. Uh, And that was good fun, too. And we missed those, rather, these juggernauts, these national juggernauts. And even the Italian pavilion show, which I absolutely agree with Lisa, was thankfully thoughtful quiet, you did get to look at work mm. it was often about looking at work, right. but in the end even the extent of that, was the back broke after a while because there was just too much work And but one of the things it did look stunning because the Italians have gracefully vacated what was the Italian pavilion but has latterly not really technically been the Italian pavilion it's now called the Pavilion of Exhibitions mm. Mm. Right. it's been beautifully decorated and opened out and the Italians have gone right to the end of the Arsenale, which is beyond the Corderia, as far as you can go before you're back in the ocean.
2: Right. Mm, Right. And I think this sense of there being too much to look at is really part of the approach of the Venice Biennale. And I imagine that everyone has the same experience as me. The first time you go, you just cannot believe
0: there's so much work. Yes, I mean, someone said to me you could take three months holiday and probably not actually see everything which is quite extraordinary really
2: I agree completely and for me that's what's so interesting about the pavilion curated by Daniel Birnbaum that he's calling Making Worlds is that it is about paying attention and if you don't see everything that's okay it's really trying to encourage that richness that slow looking at art which in the context of Venice is really really hard to do because there's almost this nervousness to see everything to tell people what your favorite was
0: makes me think of the word swamp yeah but there is actually a swamp in the the biennale is there not Mm. I mean is that indoors
2: no, it's outdoors. So this year's is it particul- my favorito? Yes. The, this, this year, um, the Arsenale, which is one of the major sites where Daniel Birnbaum's curated exhibition takes place, extends out to the gardens towards the back of the Arsenale. Right. And rather like the Roman Ondak piece, this swamp, you can almost not see it. Yes. But it's this strange, artificial intervention, interruption, in this almost picturesque, unreal landscape. But
1: don't you think that a sub-theme of the whole Venice Biennale was self-reflective, or rather was somewhat navel-gazing? There were so many works, because after all, Venice was a swamp. Uh, It was built on a mosquito Mm -hmm. swamp out of mud and wooden Mm -hmm. pilings. Um, And there was... um, Several works that reference the Giardini, really? yeah. the history of the Biennale, of course, Steve McQueen, who represented I was going to ask you,
0: I'm glad you mentioned it, because that, yes. that's, a. I understood it, to be a contemplative kind yeah. of work, <laughs> would you yes. say? Yes. I and mean, Patricia, you actually wrote uh, quite a longish paragraph yes. about his work. Go on. Well, I think I,
1: I think I have to say I was disappointed. Um, but then he set such high standards that in a sense you can't help but be disappointed. Um, and what he'd done was... There were two projections, and he had presumably gone early April or early mm-hmm. year, in the early winter months perhaps, and he'd let the cameras roll on the uh, abandoned site of the Giardini, which only comes alive during the summer months of the Biennale every two years. So there were sort of uh, dawn rising, mist um, bags of rubbish, leftovers from other biennales, including architectural music, film, which also happened in Venice and in the same site. And um, dogs which looked like feral dogs but were actually sleek greyhounds pissing against the walls of the shut-up um, <laughs> uh, biennales. And then night fell and you heard birds, um, you heard owls, or you thought you did. You saw moon reflected in water. A pair of uh, gay lovers meet. Um, they light a cigarette, or one of them lights a cigarette.
0: How long has it And it's
1: 30 minutes and two projections, and I don't know really why there were two, because one would have been enough. And you were strictly controlled. You had to arrive at a set time. You went into a dark room. You were not allowed to leave. And this set up, of course, also extra high expectations. And the work, given how many works reference the Giardini including Roman Ondak we talked about earlier, which I felt was ten times more successful for all this rather overblown filmic statement, which amounted to really a series of Cliches, And I don't want to say that, because I'm a great admirer of Steve McQueen. Yes,
2: yes. Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of disagree. I actually really like the work. But I think the really important question is what happens to work like Steve McQueen's very direct response to the context when it's shown elsewhere? Yes. Because, mm. of course, the Biennale isn't just about this crazy few months in the beautiful context of Venice. What happens when the work extends outside of this context? And I think quite often with each version of the Venice Biennale, you can't understand the significance on, of it until two, three, five, ten years later. Right.
0: Right, so it's slow in
2: that sense. I think it's. It, I think it's slow. But so that's a good thing. I mean, that. I, that I think so. Of, yeah. I mean, in in a way, for me, whenever there's an artwork or an exhibition, there really is something at stake, and it's not just for the immediacy. It's to enter into a set of discourses. Yeah. So really into the future of contemporary art history.
0: Can we go back to Mm. Liam Gillick's piece? Because Mm. he's another British artist, although not showing in the British... What do you think he was... I mean, either of you, but start with Tricia, but what do you think he was saying about the BNI in his way of doing it? I
1: think he had, of course, the hardest act to follow, as everyone coming to the German pavilion has, to follow Hans Hacker from '96 Germania, which was a fantastic um, intervention into the space... And it, it attacked the space, but it was also exquisite. Um, and I think wisely Liam thought, I'm going to go domestic. I'm going to go low-key. I'm going to be open. And there was something so friendly um permissive about casual? it, a casual, style, and he referenced the domestic kitchen, which is something of an obsession of his lately, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because the modernist kitchen was both um, a low-grade form of modernism that got overlooked, Its desi- the designer was a woman, um, but in fact his IKEA-type units are the descendants of yes. this, mm-hmm. this great liberating. And, of course, it, it marries all the critiques of minimalism about it being just specific objects, which was Judd's term yeah, was for these judge, yeah. matching cuboid shapes, which um, he's naughtily made back into functional objects. Because it also a play on art ha- being useless. Yes. Um, so of course this kitchen is too big, too extended it doesn't to be function useful. Anyway. Doesn't function. But you're gently guided round it, and you realise, in a sense, that that accusation of minimal art—that you are the theatrical agent that makes it art—he right. says, yes, indeed, you are. Yes. Even Mm. in your domestic sphere, our whole world has become more modernist than we realize. We are the inheritors of utopian modernism, even when we critique it. And there was something so light there was even this one of those fly catching plastic curtains at the entrance yes
0: you, you mentioned that i was wondering yes. what, what so you had to walk through you that had to walk and through then, it without, and that, that
1: immediately that.
2: lowered your expectation okay. given the okay. contrast okay. with okay. steve mcqueen so what about yeah. the cat
0: then lisa on, i mean the, the, the cat cats.
2: was quite an incredible thing because i really and, agree with with patricia there was a sense of joyfulness Where when you cat? went into Just it so, so the cat is on the top Of some of the cabinets. Um, So I'm trying to remember... It's not alive. No, it's not alive. It's an animatronic cat. Right. And it's incredible. It made me laugh out loud. So you see this animatronic cat with a script in its mouth, as I remember, if that's Mm. correct. And the script is something that you can pick up, that you can read. And there's something... That the description entirely lacks this sense of joyfulness because, given the context of this really grand building, mm. and here you are amongst domesticity, ag- yeah. amongst modernity, and there's this crazy cat. There. The script, do you
0: remember what the script even remotely says? I mean, is it. Is, it's it, is, it, I mean, is it like a, is it a conversation? Yes, or is it it's a... circular. Yeah, it's right.
1: about misunderstanding. Oh, yeah. lovely. Yes. Which, of course, since I think Liam was also very conscious of the fact that he writes a great deal, and a lot of the words he writes connect with his own work rather than clarifying, they t- meaning they can tend to mystify.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so he kind of made I a like joke them, of but that, they're difficult, aren't they? Yeah. Which was
1: delightful.
2: And it, and it really feeds back to Daniel Birnbaum's exhibition because he talks a lot about arts being not just about understanding but misunderstanding as well.
0: Yes, yes. Well, I think we're probably close to coming to the end of the programme, but I'm not quite sure. But um, if we're not, i got to think of something else to ask you guys. Is there anything else that really grabbed your attention that they at the they've early Was I it just I mean, if it was the ice cream that's fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh that's always welcome. Oh yeah. Um, but one of the things as Lisa was saying that you can't see at all, and I regret that, is is that there are you know that to- tormenting thing when you're leaving and people say, Did you see such and such a pavilion? Oh no, I didn't get there. But I did manage to mop up a few that are not in the Giardini, that are scattered around Venice itself, because as the Carlo Berrata, who, who's the president of the Biennale, said that Venice itself is part of the exhibition, mm. um, which, of course, attracts um, money, sponsorship, yes, and, yes. and real estate opportunities. But at the same time, it's true. And some of the countries, especially newer countries, um, subsequent to the Iron Curtain coming down, um, can't be in the Giardini, so they take over deconsecrated churches or palazzos, of which there are so many, and i've always found Estonia one not to miss mm. um, and there was a lovely little one in Cyprus, a, an elderly artist whom I'd never encountered before about the impossibility of importing a snake, now of course, snake in the garden of mm. Eden, yes, and he had all this problem with officialdom about um, bringing snake yeah, yeah. from foreign parts, yeah. but it was a wonderful allegory
0: was that was that anecdote yes, could, and, and there yes. was
1: film and there was documentation yeah. um, mm. it was very sub. Hans Hacker type of um, investigation Mm. and documentation. But he couldn't bring the serpent into Eden. But in a sense, all the documentation about it being a foreign, possibly disease ridden, said everything about um, asylum seekers and um, gypsies who are being um, persecuted in Naples right now and elsewhere in the world. So the political is always lapping at the edges of the island. You know, the sea around uh, uh, Venice is political. And there were lots of... Wonderful yeah. um, off Broadway, you might. You
0: mentioned say. again, didn't you, Patricia? Because yeah. he has got a piece in this this year, has he not? As yes. a photograph,
1: um, it's a it's a photograph. he was invited by, uh, by the um, province of Murcia. Um, I think it's called. Is it um, the fear uh, something of fear? Um, and it was a. Um, Invited artists, internationally invited artists to comment on the climate of fear in which we live. And he was asked to um, uh, by Palestinian and Israeli artists to comment on on the situation there and on the 40-year occupation. And very deftly, he used a photograph he'd taken in the 25th year, I think it was, of Mm -hmm. the occupation of a little boy and a text explaining the invitation, what took him to Palestine, when he took the photo... And then just the photo, and you ask yourself, where is that little yes, boy now? Yes. Nothing has changed. No, this no. sort of, there was a lot. That was another theme, I think, the cyclical nation of of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nature, you talk about
0: looping, don't you? The yes. looping. Yeah between the past and the present to consider the future runs through the exhibition hall? I
2: think it runs through the exhibition halls, but it runs through so much of the work Mm -hmm. in Venice as a whole. So I think that retrospectively, my early ideas that keep on coming back in my head is this sense of looping, moving between the past, the present, in order to rethink the future. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's something highly political, as well as being something concerned with the look of the work, the aesthetics of the work too
0: okay let's talk prizes uh lisa
2: um go. well yeah let's talk prizes i always i'm a little bit skeptical about prizes at venice because i think it's such a spectacle there's so much going on there's so much to see you can never see everything and then on top of that you've got the prizes as well so you have prizes for lifetime achievement prizes, prizes for the best pavilion prizes for Prizes almost. So I'm I'm really not that convinced by them because I think the work is there and surely that's enough. And I'm really interested in trying to get away from the question of saying, what was your best? What did you think was most successful? I think it's much more urgent to think about what is at stake with work? Why is it important? Yeah. Not who's best, who's worse. Yeah.
0: So it's encouraging the wrong approach. Mm. For, for me, yeah. Sort of, yeah, yeah. Who actually, Patricia, who, who, who decides who gets them?
1: Well, first of all, I completely agree with Lisa. I, I think that, I mean, the most infamous prize was, uh, we all talked about the classic 1996 year when Hans Hucker's pavilion was magnificent. June Pike, Ilya Kabakov, any one of whom mm. we would have voted for. Completely. And the prize for best pavilion was given to Egypt. And when they announced it, there was a stampede. Among the press, because no one had gone there. It was so unmemorable, <laughs> and it was terrible. Home, it was sub-caro steel sculpture, meaningless. So clearly the prize then was a compromise. Mm. Some political shenanigans going on yes, behind the scenes. Yes. Now, the committees award prizes, of course, and different committees award different prizes. Um, and I, to be honest, can't remember who was on this committee. Sure. Last year, I know Ivona Blaswick, director of Whitechapel, mm. was oh, on really? one of the committees. This time, John Baldessari and Yoko Ono won a Lifetime Achievement Award. Well, that's fine, you yes, know. Um, yes. But um, the best pavilion prize was given to Bruce Nauman, And mm-hmm. it wasn't a pavilion prize, unless they have three pavilions, because it was spread all over Venice and it was nothing more than a retrospective. Mm-hmm. Now, Absolutely. I yield to no one my, ima- my admiration for Bruce Nauman, but best pavilion for one new work...
0: Yeah, so they're sort of breaking their yes, own structure as Absolutely. It were, aren't they, really? So, what
1: was that about? Mm. And then you get Golden Lion for Best Artist in the Curated Exhibition, Making Worlds, went to Tobias Rehberger. Mm. And that was absurd because he was actually asked to de- design a cafe, which he did. And then they cite. Um, what was it, um, for taking us beyond the white cube where past modes of exhibition are reinvented and the work of art turns into a cafeteria. Well, that's what he was asked to provide. <laughs> yeah. And as we ask in art notes, maybe Daniel Birnbaum should have been given the prize well, since yes, he commissioned it. He was actually
0: curating. So. so what's
1: that about? Then you've got Silver Lion for most promising young artists given to Natalie Juberg mm. for uh, an animated work, which I didn't like, but... I don't know. I have no idea. Did you see that, Lisa?
2: Yeah, I did. It was quite an incredible work. It was like going into another fantasy world, maybe built by some kind of strange, adolescent, slightly melancholic figure. Oh, dear. Mm. (laughs) But it was okay. It wasn't bad. Yes,
1: yes.
0: Well, that's clearly a a thing that some of the artists were very keen to get, the prizes. Oh, yes. Um, (laughs) I wonder how much they work during the years before <laughs> to get mm. to get them I, I also wonder how some of them get in, to be in the, the biennale itself it's a, it is a, a, a p- hothouse of power mm. from what I've understood from today's conversation well thank you both very much indeed for coming in today and talking with me, I've learned something. I haven't been to the bin Ali yet. I plan to ride my motorcycle there in the summer. You have to go and if it's I have great. any energy left, I shall <laughs> okay. try and go, but I won't be there for three months going <laughs> around. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a an
1: Italian
0: motorbike, I'll <laughs> have, yes, it is. It is an Italian motorbike, but I probably only have two days in the bin But at least I will know where to go now and make my <laughs> choices. <laughs> um, I'm going to plug our monthly subscriptions one more time. Um, remember if you go to our website, your contact details are there, um, or you can email subs at artmonthly.co.uk and just put the word resonance in and uh, we'll email you back with an offer of 30% discount. Um, Thank you ever so much for listening everybody and goodbye. goodbye.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye.